Okay, we're at Lesson 14, January the 28th, and we get to move uh, on through Matthew chapter 3, the last few verses here, verses 13 through 17. Last week we were able to finish up our discussion and teaching as it related to repentance, uh, which uh, was brought on us as we looked at what John the Baptist was, was doing here. He was preaching a baptism of repentance, so kind of use that as a stump to jump on and <laughs> go off on repentance for a couple of lessons. And we've done that and brought that to a close. And so, Scriptures kind of move forward here as Matthew chapter 3 is, is closing out. And we go back and we look at what we've seen so far in Matthew. We looked initially at the ancestry, as you know, we looked at the arrival of Christ, uh, the incarnation, our virgin-born Savior. And then He was adorned. He was attested. There was the announcement uh, about Him coming forth from chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And now we look at what's often referred to as His anointing. We look at it as the beginning of His public ministry and so forth. So uh, all has happened, uh, as we understand, according to God's timetable. Everything happened right when it was supposed to happen, as we say. But there's some specific things that happened in this passage, or one thing in particular, and that's His baptism. And how important was that? And what does that say to us? The baptism of Christ? So we're going we're gonna to look at that this morning and see what the Holy Spirit has for us there. But remember the theme, remember the purpose of Matthew against all that we've looked at, all these other things that we've we've chased. It's about Jesus the King. It's about King Jesus, our High Priest. All these things rolled into one, but primarily He's presented as King of the Jews. He's the long-awaited Savior, Messiah. This is Him. And Matthew stays true to this through the guiding of the Holy Spirit as we move to the end of the third chapter here. So he's manifested publicly, if you will. It wasn't, well, we don't know a whole lot about Christ, you know, during that time. We've just got a little bit here and a little bit there from the different gospel accounts. Only one gospel, but different accounts. And we see some of the things that. He didn't say, but, but not a whole lot. Uh, we know that John, as we'd said before, had, was, you know, we, we think he was six months older than, than Jesus. Uh, he'd been preaching for a while, but we don't know. Uh, you know. I make reference earlier to their ministries beginning at the same time. I know we're, I was, I'm thinking like from a historical standpoint down, but they're, they're going to be separated by months, of course. The actual specific beginning. John had been out there, as he says, at least six months, maybe even up to closer to a year, 10 or 12 months, preaching, preaching the baptism of repentance down on the Jordan. And uh, that work was being done because there was a time of preparation. He was to be there making preparation for the people, giving them the word, giving them, if you will, opportunity to repent, opportunity to do this inventory, to look at their Lives and to be ready for their Messiah. So he did, as it says, he preached specifically a baptism 
of repentance and was was doing a good job at it and that he was being faithful. We talked about this is what made him great. It was his faithfulness and the nature of his message. It wasn't his personality per se. It wasn't any of that. Probably wouldn't let him in our pulpits nowadays. He, he looked a little different. He, he lived a little different. Okay. Um, but it's interesting to look at how John separated himself from the world for this particular this awesome mission that, that he was called to. And uh, it's not only Christ's words, but people who look at his life and what we know about him from Scripture can see. He, he was an awesome guy. He was. Christ says he was the greatest, that none were greater than him up to that time. So with that alone, we say, well, maybe we'd better stop and look at this guy. So that's what we've, we've been doing as he preached. Luke gave us uh, some historic references if you were to go to to Luke, uh, what chapter three of Luke? Uh, because he tells us that that he was on the scene in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius. So historically, we can go back and look and see exactly where uh, John was. You know, within a couple of months, I guess. We know also that Pilate was the governor of Judea during that time. That even Herod, he was the tetrarch in in Galilee. So historically, you can pull all those things together and look at the time frame. So we come up with, you know, what did they say around A.D. 29, somewhere in there that this was going on. And uh, Jesus is about to, to pop out on the scene and uh, begin his, his public ministry. At 30 years of age, uh, this draws some attention from some scholars, it's been interesting to read about. Um, you know, most scholars agree, and basically from Numbers chapter 4, verse 30, that, that age 30 was where they started their public ministry, you know, and the priests and so forth would observe that. But if you continue reading in the scriptures, you'll find, um, uh, in fact, Numbers 8 24 changes it, moves it to 20, from 30 to 25 years of age. And then even in First Chronicles chapter 23, verse 24, they drop it on down to 20. So I guess as times get hard, okay, then they have to draw from youth or whatever. But at any rate, that's when he started. Maybe it's a testimony that the original is better. I don't know. I often think about that myself. But at any rate, he was about 30 years of age when he started. There's really no other reason other than the fact that it's simply God's timing. It's God's will. It's God's desire. It's his sovereign control of what was going on. So I say again, things are progressing as God would have them progress specifically. At the very moment, at the very instant, what has to happen happens in particular when it comes to something like this, and that being that Jesus beginning beginning his public ministry. So we know that this is certainly under God's direction. Jesus came for baptism. Interesting. He comes for baptism and he comes with everybody else. This is significant as well as we study it. He doesn't have his own private ceremony over here which has been carved out at perhaps the most beautiful temple available on earth at that time and with the muckety-mucks from various religions or the Jews or whatever, they're present. None of that happens because that's not the purpose. 
He comes with everybody else. And we have to ask the question, why would he do that? What is the purpose? And even from a practical standpoint, we might say, well, hey, isn't it, isn't it important to keep these two separate? Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, he identifies with sinners, and that's a key phrase. That's what he's doing. He's identifying with mankind, but don't we want to kind of keep those separate? I mean, don't we want to keep him up here, you know, and give us great hope, and we constantly look to him? And then we're down here, and we just stay humble and understand where we are. But the Scriptures explain that to us. It shows us why He did that. And we'll, we'll get to that. But He didn't have His own private audience. The Scriptures indicate that it happened like this. While John the Baptist is baptizing, that He looks up and here comes Jesus. Here He comes. And... John knew him, had knowledge of him. We'll look at that in a little greater detail. But there are some things that John didn't know that he was waiting for, and we'll see that. So we begin today looking in chapter 3, verse 13. And the Scriptures tell us simply that then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, and that coming should be in italics, I guess, in your... Scripture there, coming to John to be baptized by him. And it is interesting to look at the words here just a bit. Even the word arrived, I think, has some particular significance. Paragonomia is the word. But it's a specific word. It relates to an official arrival. Okay, uh, It relates to uh, a public appearance of sorts, if you will. Uh, it's the same word I understand that's used when it talked about the arrival of the Magi. It's the same thing. Again, particular place, particular time, particular mission, you know, all at the direction of God in this case. And even John himself, when it talks about John the Baptist coming on the scene, it's the same word. That's why I keep saying this is God's timing. This is his plan. This is laid out the way that he intended it to be. And John recognized Jesus. I mean, it would be crazy to think, I guess, that he wouldn't recognize him, not only because of the, the family relationship. Uh, a number of things occurred in John's life that would make us think, well, he knew about him. You know, we know what Elizabeth thought of Mary when Mary came to see her. You know, the mother of my Lord is what Elizabeth called Mary, there was that knowledge there um, and uh, John's mission about preparing the way. They knew Jesus, okay? We don't know how much he knew him. We don't know how much time he spent around Jesus. We know the scriptures just simply say that John at some point took his life out into the wilderness. Uh, We don't know. There's no record of them intersecting. But I think it'd be going too far to say that he didn't have any knowledge of him. And uh, quite frankly, and I don't want to focus on that. If you have questions about this, I'll answer them. But if you go and you look at the Gospel of John, you know, you've got the words there where, was it 133, where he says, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That scripture is disclosed there. But in the verses that follow, not once but twice, John the Baptist says, and I did not recognize him. He says that twice. I did not recognize him. So, he knew him, 
But we have to look at the words. But you didn't recognize him. Is that to say you didn't understand fully what he was? Because in that text, John also says, look, God told me it's going to be the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit falling. That's going to be the one. That's going to be the telltale sign, if you will. So we would have to say, well, John, being obedient to God, was waiting for that. And as I went through this, and I'm looking at this, um, we, we know that John understood that he was more than just a man, because in our Scriptures today, he's going to say, man, I ain't going to baptize you. I'm not going to baptize you. I have need to be baptized of you. He had that knowledge and understanding. But we'd have to conclude that his knowledge and understanding was not full because what God had said would happen to identify Christ as the Messiah, to identify Jesus as Messiah, had not happened. And that was that the Holy Spirit, he said, on the one in whom you see the Holy Spirit falling, that's, that's the one. He's the one who will, uh, what was it, um, Baptize people with, with fire, the Holy Spirit with fire. Okay. So we have to bring those scriptures together from Matthew and from John. Uh, and as I was studying this, just for a brief moment, I thought I had discovered something. And then I thought, look, well, I'm, not, I'm not the first one to see this, of course. But anyway, so I go and look and you look at the different commentaries. I said, somebody needs to explain this. Because if you just read it, a cursory read in Matthew and then in John, they do this. Okay. So, that's the example. Yes, he had a knowledge of him. He had a, uh, a family knowledge of him. He understood, I think he understood his sinlessness. He understood that. But God had told him when this happens, okay, then that's the one who's going to, you know, be able to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John had said that. That's what he told the people. And when that happened, John said, Hey, man, I, it's time for me to back off. He must increase, but I must decrease. So we'll look at that in part again as we, as we, as we go along. Uh, <clears throat> but I wanted to mention that about the word arrive because it is a specific word that we look at here. And it came to be baptized. And this is a variation of the word. Oh, Baptist the Nei. And what's interesting in this, it's, and uh, of course, I don't know the Greek. I have to study hard on this stuff. Uh, but it's one of those aorist, aorist passive infinitive words, okay? In other words, the word here is used to specify that Jesus came to John with the intent and for the specific purpose of being baptized. So it's just interesting to see that the original language in, makes that clear. This had to happen. He was to be baptized on that day, at that time, by John in a public way. In a public way. Because he came with everybody else. So this is significant. It's not just a thing that happened. It was significant that it happened in that fashion. And we'll look at some of those reasons in just a moment. Hang with me here. So look at chapter 3, verse 14. Because I like this. Interesting. But John, here comes Jesus to be baptized. John tried to prevent him, saying, Man, I have need to be baptized of you, and do you come to me? So once again, looking at the words gives us a better idea 
of what transpired here. Because we look first at this fact that John tried to prevent him, which is interesting. You have to say, well, what was going on between his ears? Well, like I say, we know that John had to have some knowledge about him, okay, about his life. he could probably talk to Jesus' brothers, okay, and say, hey, man, he, he never does anything wrong. He's just perfect, okay. But beyond that, John knows, I think he knows from a spiritual perspective as well, since, of course, he was full of the, or the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He understands this, but his first, his first response, because he, he knows who he is too. I've got to be baptized by you. I'm a sinner. I know what I am, and I know who you are. But this word is specific, and it means that there's, it's like a struggle going on. I'm not even going to try to pr- pronounce this Greek word. But it suggests, as it says, an intense or continuous effort. It wasn't just a casual conversation that John the Baptist had with Jesus when he stepped up there next in the baptismal line. He was like, uh-uh. And I almost get the picture of some kind of tussle. I said, no, I'm not doing this. And that, to me, I mean, it's just it's reflective of John's, you know, his, his lack of pride, his humility in his life. What he knows, okay, he just can't do that. He has that knowledge. So John struggles with that. And, you know, if we look hard, we, we see the humanity of John the Baptist, do we not? We see a little of it here. As great as he is, as specific as his mission is, as his power, as empowered as he is. Like I said, he's full of the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and yet he still struggles sometimes. Okay? He's going to struggle later on when he's in that dungeon, isn't he? He's going to struggle a little bit. I get encouragement out of that. I get encouragement also the way that was handled, the way Jesus responded to him. When John sent his, his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one or do we, are we to wait for another? Are you kidding me? After all this, you're asking that question? Man, that's, that's the flesh. That's what happens when you're in a dungeon. That's what happens. And you know what that was, don't you? That was a hole in the ground. That was a wet, damp, dark hole in the ground. And if it was under the palace or whatever it was still a damp dark hole in the ground where they threw your food down there and you got up off the floor and you ate it okay it was one of those kind of places and he he went through this thing i'm sure of why am i here wow is this the way it's supposed to work out is this where this is supposed to go the just live by faith do they not and the lord encouraged him with the word of god so john was human He had a lot going on. He brought a lot to the table because of God's graciousness to him, God's provision in his life. But he still was fleshly. And here, based on what he knows, Christ comes for baptism. And Scriptures clearly indicate that he's involved in some kind of continual effort here to prohibit Christ from being baptized, or at least being baptized by him. So he don't think it's right. But the Lord will answer him in just a minute. But this, of course, is evidence of his humility, of his understanding. You know, as we said in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, you find that recorded where he says the next day that he or John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, once we have that 
understanding about the person of Christ. And I mean on a personal level. Once we understand that He is our Savior, that He is our hope, right? And we serve Him, that He is our Lord, as I often say. That, that changes everything. And that does serve as a pinnacle point for us. That's, that's how we evaluate every, should evaluate everything that we become involved in. Does it bring honor and glory to our Lord? The one who has performed the most important effect upon my life, and that is that my sin debt, my guiltiness before God Almighty has been eradicated, has been covered by His sacrifice, by His obedience, by His blood. I'm talking about when we wrap our minds around that, that changes the way we live. That is the overwhelming impact of the gospel and the new birth in our life. Okay. John recognized Him as that Savior and said so. So, he was focused, he was committed to his mission, and he did recognize him, but he knew that he had no sin, and he didn't want to baptize him. You know, there was another group of people that he didn't want to baptize either, right? You remember those, don't you? But for a totally different reason, right? I guess you could say... John took this issue of baptism, this baptism of repentance. He took it very serious, right? He knew what he was supposed to do and was supposed to be doing, and he knew what it took to genuinely submit to that baptism. And you might even say to be eligible for that baptism, because in his ministry he called those Pharisees and those Sadducees. He called them into account and judging their heart and saying, "Why are you here? Why are you coming?" Okay. And as if to say, you've, you've lived, you lived a certain kind of life, so bring forth fruits, meats, whatever your translation, worthy of repentance. As it says, show that there's been a difference. Show that there's an actual repentance going on and then come and submit yourself to the baptism. Because the baptism in and of itself, just like baptism today, didn't save anybody, didn't make anybody repent. It was a testimony of what had happened. In that person. So John didn't want to baptize those people for that reason. He didn't want to baptize Christ for this reason. But he takes his baptism important. Isn't it interesting as well that in in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 2, the scriptures say that Jesus didn't baptize anybody. He didn't baptize anyone. It says his disciples baptized people, they were outside baptizing. But Jesus clearly says didn't baptize anyone because he didn't come. To baptize. Even Paul said, I didn't come to baptize. And Paul backs up and says, well, I baptized Gaius or somebody. I baptized a couple. But that's not why I came. They understood baptism and its purpose. Christ came and identified with humanity in submission to his baptism, though he had no sin. That's important for us. Very important for us. Why do I say that? Because of Hebrews 4.15 primarily. For we do not have a high priest, Christ, who cannot be touched, cannot sympathize, if you will, with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. He identifies with us. Though He is 
sinless. He has been there. The scriptures say plainly, He is the one who's qualified. In the Old Testament analogy, He is that perfect Lamb who is spotless and has no blemish even after being tested, even after dealing with what you and I deal with. The Bible says God doesn't tempt anybody and He can't be tempted. Christ only in His humanity could even identify with this. Only with putting on flesh, only in His incarnation could this happen. And yet, He did not sin. He did not sin. Our perfect sacrifice. We rejoice in that today. And that He would get so close to us in identifying with us. Isn't that, isn't that a comfort to know literally, according to Hebrews 4.15 here, that there's nothing that you and I can experience. Now I'm talking about no level of illness, physical, emotional, mental, no, no level of rejection, no level of need, no level of spiritual bombardment, if you will, that Christ has not experienced. Yet He did it without sin. He had the victory over it. And the ultimate testimony of His victory was that He rose from the grave. That's our Savior. That's what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why the writer of Hebrews follows up in verse 16. And I've not turned to it. He says, Therefore, uh, let us come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We can come. We're not going to get what we deserve. We're going to get mercy. And we're going to get grace. We're going to get grace upon grace. Why? Because of what we've talked about the last two or three lessons. Because of our repentance, our genuine repentance, God has received us. We're relying on Him for forgiveness because of His sacrifice, because of His example, which is all wrapped up here, even in His submission to baptism, pleasing the Heavenly Father. We have a Savior. We have a Savior. And He's about to step on the world scene here in this context. As King of Kings and Lord of Lords, He's going to begin, He's going to begin that ministry. He's going to begin speaking those words whereby everyone's life who hears Those who hear those words and allow the Holy Spirit to take those words down into their heart, they respond in faith, believing their lives are changed for all time and eternity. That's what we serve. Verse 15, But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill All righteousness. Well, the power of Jesus' words. Because the end of that verse says, then He permitted Him. John's going to be true and faithful to what he knows, but he's been corrected here. Okay? He's been corrected. He's received word from the virgin-born Son of God who says, look, We need to do this right now. This is what we're supposed to do right now. As he says, permit it, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Christ is referring to what he is supposed to be doing. I'm to be here, as we said earlier, publicly submitting to this baptism. 
my public identification with mankind. That's why He's here. That's why He came. He came into the world to save sinners. Paul said He came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is the impact of this realization that I shared earlier. That's why John is is virtually cowering, understanding his own need of repentance and forgiveness. Christ, out of His love for us, identifies with that. So Matthew records, really, I mean, if you look at Scripture, these, these are the next words spoken by Jesus. Okay, the, if you look at the Gospels, because the only other thing He had said, I'm talking about what the Scriptures record that Jesus has said, was what He said when He was 12 years old in the temple. You know, I, you know what was it? I mean, uh, Luke 2.49 said, I must be about my Father's business. Uh, there's, not a, there's not a record of Him saying anything else in the time frame until right here. Okay. Which is interesting. When I, and when I looked at that, I thought, well, well what about Mark? What's the, what are the first recorded words that we have in the Gospel of Mark from Jesus? Just to divert a little bit to look at this. Mark 1.15 where Christ says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And what do we see? Repent, Christ says, and believe the gospel. So the first thing we see there in Mark is this message of repentance from Christ. That's what's recorded. And then in John, in John 1.38, you've got, this is where uh, Andrew and Peter are coming to him and they ask him, where are you going, where are you staying? And Jesus says, what do you seek? Those are the first words that we say. What do you seek? And you could just take these and, and, and dwell upon their importance. Why are these, and these individual Gospels, why are, are these the first words that we see? What's the significance of that? We don't have to argue much about repentance, you know, when we see that from Mark or from John, when he challenges these two to look at the motivation of their heart. Why are you seeking me in the first place? Isn't that the question? Isn't that the big question today? Why are you seeking God? Is it because of what you can get? Is that it? No. Or is it because what He can do for you and how He can change your life? So he says, permit it at this time. And this is referred to, at least in MacArthur commentary, he says it's a common idiom of the times. It's a phrase that you would hear regularly. The word answering here speaks of him uh, literally beginning to speak in an official address and it would have been uh, something that he was expected to say. He's expected to give an account because something has been said to him and that's exactly what's going on here. John the Baptist has put a question to him where he's put, he said, how can I do this? And he indicates, you know, because who I am and because of who you are, it begs a question, it begs an answer rather, and Christ gives him that answer. And he says it's done to fulfill, or to pleru, as it says, to make complete, to satisfy, to finish, to make full. I've got to do this. This is part of the plan. And he says it's incumbent upon us to fulfill all righteousness. And that word there for righteousness speaks of literally of, of character or a particular act. It's an act that demonstrates character, the right kind of character. And that's what this is about. This is about doing the right thing. 
So that's why that particular word is used. It's also a word that's often related to the word justification, of course. <coughs> Jesus says, look, it's time to do it. It's the right thing to do. We're going to do it, and we do it, and we're doing it. <laughs> and John was okay with that because it says that he, he permitted him. John's like all of us. He goes with what he knows, right? He's a man of the word. He's dedicated to what he's doing. He's done it at significant sacrifice. It's ultimately going to cost him his life. So he wants to get it right. But he understood enough about who Jesus was when Jesus said, we're going to do this. that he just said, okay, that's what we'll do. So he had that kind of knowledge about Christ. Why did Jesus insist on baptism? Why did he do that? And I'll finish this up and I'll stop at verse... 16. We'll do 16, 17 next week. Why did Jesus insist on baptism? Well, we've already said, and we won't belabor it, but it was simply God's plan. Jesus would tell us many times, I do only those things which the Father tells me to do. You know, He and I are one, by the way. If you've seen me, you've seen Him. But I do what He tells me to do. And we know that it was certainly consistent with that. But it was also certainly uh, his baptism, an example for his followers. We wouldn't be able to deny that at all. Jesus set that example. And again, we make, uh, make note of the fact that he did it to identify himself with mankind, and which is the third thing here. And there are a number of verses that would bear that out. I won't read them all, but if you want to look at Hebrews 4.15, which I read, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that, you know, for he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is the sin bearer. Isaiah 53.11 speaks of him. uh, It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Do you see this identification element here? Even in the bearing of our iniquities. He's the only one who could do it because of who he was. All right? But he says plainly that God prepared him a body to be able to do that. This was also, fourthly, this was Jesus' first act of ministry. He comes, as we said, to begin his public ministry. And then his baptism was also a symbol, just like it is today of any baptism, of the death, burial, and resurrection. In this case, of his death, burial, and resurrection. A prefigurement, if you will, of Christian baptism uh, for everyone. And then, obviously, authentication authentication from God the Father of His Messiahship because of what we see when we get down to verse 17. And we'll look at that more specifically when we get to that point. I love what uh, a comment that MacArthur made because as we go back and look at this little tussle or whatever, this little rejection of John the Baptist with Jesus when he came to to be baptized... Uh, MacArthur said, he said, it points out that the scripture, uh, in the scripture, that he couldn't see, if this weren't true, he couldn't see John ever baptizing him or submitting to him if he had not have understood this at that point 
when Jesus told him to baptize him. That he would have just said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. In other words, Christ's interaction with him had to win him over. John's, John's resolve was so great. His, his being on task, being on mission, on his mission was so great that he wouldn't have baptized him. You know, that's speculation, but it's, it's interesting, interesting to look at. Um, so we have that. You know, Christ only talked about his baptism in, in two other places. In two other places in Scripture. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he says, But I have a baptism to undergo, and, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Luke twelve fifty, Christ uses the word baptism, and he talks about it. But here he's talking about what? What baptism is he talking about? Yeah, he's speaking of the cross, the experience of the cross. <clears throat> and if you look in your Bible there, you'll probably find some subtitle there that speaks of the cost of discipleship. That's the only other time that he mentions that. And he uses that word. And that's, that's interesting because for people to come and to be baptized, you know, a baptism of repentance, you know, awaiting the coming Messiah, this, this, this said a lot. Okay? This put them in a different category. As we said earlier when we started studying, this type of baptism, which was always immersion, uh, was for those proselytes who were coming into the Jewish faith. That's what they had subjected themselves to. So it's a public identification, just as it is now. So he speaks of it in Luke 1250, there he's talking about the experience of the baptism. You know, we talked about baptism by fire, baptism by the Spirit. Here, Christ uses it metaphorically, talking about his suffering on the cross. But then again, in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. They're again talking about the same thing. Do you remember the context here? This is James and John coming to him and saying, Hey, before you get too busy, Christ, could we sit on your right hand and left hand, you know, when you come into your kingdom? You know. So he responded to them with great graciousness. You know, one scripture records that uh, was that James and John's mother came to Christ at one time. As they're, and this is, this is as they're moving toward Jerusalem. He's moving toward the cross. And they still don't get it. You know, He told them earlier in that context, I think he said in Luke, he says, you know, you don't even understand what happened with the loaves and the fishes. He says, you don't even understand that. You don't know why that happened. You, you still don't get everything, okay? <laughs> but they eventually got it, didn't they? They eventually got it. At any rate, he uses this uh, analogy of baptism, talking about you know, his own sacrifice. How do we relate that to our understanding of baptism? And I'll close after this. How do we relate that to our understanding of baptism? How important, how significant is baptism in our understanding, in our own personal commitment, rather than just the fact, yeah, the Bible says to be baptized, Christ says to do it. We know it, it doesn't dispense grace, you know, You can certainly go to heaven without being baptized, but it's a command from Christ that we're to be baptized. Okay? That should do it. But for us personally, do we understand what that means for us as an individual when we submit ourselves to the experience of public baptism?
It is our public identification with Jesus Christ and therefore with the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what it testifies of. And I pray that it's the case each and every time someone submits to baptism because there's no grace that comes out of it. There's peace that comes out of it. should be our great joy. And you know, I could ask that to somebody in a country where they're persecuted for their Christian faith and they would be able to answer that question, right? They'd be able to answer that pretty, pretty quickly, pretty clearly about how important that is for them to do that. And to be able to do it with some level of, I don't know, power, I think, because of what it costs. Because of what it costs. And to, so many times today, I fear that people submit, seemingly submit to the power of, of the cross, to Christ in their life. And they do that through public baptism. <coughs> and they don't have a real clear understanding of the depth of that commitment, the significance of it. When we do, we can enter into that joyfully. We can enter into that confidently. When we can say, hey, okay, regarding the issue of cost, and it's almost silly to talk about cost in our day and time because even though it's increasing and Christians are focused upon, you know, <clears throat> like they haven't been, in, at least in my lifetime prior, it ain't like it's been, it's not like it's been in many other parts of the world, certainly in these days, when it could cost you your life. You know? So, it's an important, important event. I love going to our baptisms. I love going, I love what our church does in its wisdom. And when our candidates stand there and they talk about the change in their life, that is, that is so wonderful. And then they, they publicly, through their baptism, through their words, declare their faith in Christ, their desire to serve Him, their turning from sin, their desire to continually return from sin. We sat there, I know I do, and I say, yes, Lord, and me too again today. I, I, re, I rehearse that each and every time. I don't care if we have 11 people baptized, I do it each and every time they go through it. It's a wonderful thing because of the grace of God. And Christ identified Himself with us. He is that Lamb. Okay? And we'll see next week when we get together that He's also a dove. Okay? We'll do that next week.